Good evening and welcome to Thursday Night Tailgate, where NFL legends live. Join us tonight as we get more legendary stories from former players and coaches who were in the huddles, on the sidelines, and in the locker room. Plus insights from media members from around the country who have covered the game for decades. Check out our five-star picks of the week with former Patriots Pro Bowl running back Tony Collins. Plus, our spotlight on the positive segment. And here are some good things for a change about what players and teams are doing in their community. Now, here are your hosts, Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazari. Go get them, guys. Folks, and thank you for joining us tonight on Thursday Night Tailgate, where your favorite NFL legends live. Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazari here to get you ready for week number 16 in the NFL season. Bob, how are you, my friend? Merry Christmas. I was going to say the same thing to you, Chris, and happy holidays to all our listeners out there. Uh, I'm doing okay up here. Ah, that's good news. I know it's a tough time of year for you guys in the northeast part of the country. I tell you. We're about to get as cold as I think we've ever been in Atlanta. 21 is is now the predicted high. We're floating somewhere between 19 and 21 for the high tomorrow. Nine degrees in Atlanta for the low tomorrow, Bob. Unbelievably cold here. Well, I told you off the air, Chris, winter is off to a, a, a raving start here as we have pouring rain right now, and it's about 36 degrees. So that's borderline, but we're going to get a wind event within the next, 24 to 36 hours supposed to cause power outages and then that uh that flash freeze which is deadly that's supposed to happen uh probably tomorrow night so uh again i can't do anything about it so i'm not going to complain anymore <laughs> <laughs> there you go hopefully no one loses power of that way yeah. not at christmas time and not in the winter not in the and then a, a situation where we're going to be so cold so prayers right. up for all of our our folks up your way and Bob, I'm sure you can imagine how somber I and the rest of Steelers Nation are feeling tonight with the loss of Franco Harris yesterday. The Steelers set to retire his number on Saturday. It makes it even more heartbreaking that we're about to celebrate him and his wonderful career, retire his number, celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception. And the thing that just is a head scratch, I mean, the guy was doing a lot of media over the last couple of weeks and, and ESPN just had interviewed him that morning. And then all of a sudden we wake up to the news that he has passed, uh, which I guess reminds us all how fragile life is and that, you know, tomorrow isn't guaranteed to any of us. But Bob, just heartbreaking news for, uh, Steelers fans and really for all football fans. Chris, it would have been heartbreaking at any time of the year, but you're right. The time of the year, uh, we were all under the impression that he was doing well. Uh, we did not see this one coming. Uh, and uh, again, I, I thought about you and all the Pittsburgh Steelers fans, but, you know, truthfully, Chris, he was one of my favorite players ever. Him and Walter Payton. And I'll tell you why, because I mean, when I'm growing up, here I am, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old when he comes into the league and I'm watching, uh, you know, him do what he did. And, uh, you kind of took it for granted back then. When you look back at it now when you're older, you look how consistent he was. He wasn't a superstar at Penn State. I mean, between six and 
700 years, six yards per year rushing. But obviously, being in the Steelers' backyard, Chris, they had an eye on what this guy was capable of doing. And, you know, I, I, I must have had, uh, I, I felt a brethren with the Franco's Italian Army. I mean, when you went into that <laughs> Three River Stadium back in the day, Chris, think about it. You had Franco's Italian Army, Jurella's Gorillas. That place was one of the most electric buildings I've ever seen. I, I've never been there, but just the way the fans treated that team and the way Franco went around along along his business, Chris. I was watching some highlights of him just before we came on tonight, and when he scored touchdowns, he had acted like he had been there before, which I love guys like that. Some of them continue to do that. You know, he was just a workmanlike guy. You know, you didn't think of him as speed burner, uh, this and that. He never got more, really, more than 1,200 yards rushing in a year. But his consistency was incredible, and no one was better in the postseason. So, uh, again, I can go on and on. Uh, there's highlights all over YouTube, et cetera, Chris. But, um, man, that was a tough loss. And, you know, a part of my youth uh, died with him. And I, I, my only regret is I never had a chance to meet him or speak with him. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go to my grave thinking that way. Yeah. And um, we're hearing an awful lot about the great things that he continued to do. In the Pittsburgh community, he and Lydell Mitchell, who shared that backfield at Penn State, have a bakery there and they do a lot of charity work there. And Franco was always a pillar of the Pittsburgh community. And and to your point, Bob, you can't think about the Steelers of the 70s and those four Super Bowls without thinking about Franco Harris, one of the pillars of that team. Great guy, great player and always rose to the occasion in the Super Bowl. Uh, I'll never forget the. The Super Bowl where, you know, Thomas Henderson was giving Bradshaw a hard time and and uh, Franco going into the huddle saying, you know, give me the ball. I want the ball and bursting in for a touchdown to, to help put the Steelers uh, up to stay in that 35-31 uh, Super Bowl championship. But, um, yeah, 32 is going to live forever. I, I just, you know, y- you wish that, that guys could live to see the honor. And uh, it's just going to be a tough one on Saturday. Uh, we go from a celebration to a memorial, uh, a 180, uh, with what, uh, was being planned, uh, for Saturday night and Christmas Eve and the whole nine. It's, it's just, it's just a tragedy that, that Franco is not going to be able to, to be there for it. And, uh, obviously puts a damper on what was going to be a wonderful celebration. So, uh, thoughts and prayers obviously go out to, to his wife and his son. And, uh, like I say, to all of Steelers Nation. Bob, I want to go back to uh, last weekend's games and, and get some thoughts from you. The Bills end up holding off the Dolphins uh, coming from behind late in that game to win on a last-second field goal. But your thoughts, did, did Miami at least gain some small moral victory by going into Buffalo, playing in the cold and the snow, nearly coming out with a win, or really is there no such thing as a moral victory in that? Well, I, I, I think it is, Chris, especially for a franchise like that that's had trouble coming up here. The three of us, all three of us, uh, I think picked Buffalo, uh, to win. I didn't, I, I didn't think it'd be that close. I, you know, I, I thought it would be semi-competitive, but, you know, for them to be in the game right to the end, uh, that has to do something. You know, now if, if it happens again, they'll say we went up there and we could have easily won that game. And so, I mean, it does do them a lot. I did not expect that most of those games up there are not close, Chris. So, um, yeah, it, it's got to help them. And, and that has to do, I think, with, with a solid quarterback and obviously 
an upcoming great coach. So, uh, yeah, kudos to Miami. Came up a little short, but, uh, if you're going to lose, uh, you know, that, that, I think they came away with something from that, that loss. Uh, both teams in the NFC South, not both teams, all the teams in the NFC South continue to lose. And because they do, the Bucks still have a one game lead over the rest of the division. They're six and eight. Everybody else at five and nine. The Bucks remaining schedule has them home to Arizona, who will be starting their third string quarterback this weekend. And then they're at Carolina, then back home against the Falcons. Can Brady get this team somehow, some way to a division title? I think so, Chris, only because it's such a bad division. I mean, just, just do the math here. Um, but I still keep scratching my head that, you know, they're like the, uh, one of the lowest scoring teams in all of football. I think second worst the NFC. Talked about it last week. The Rams are even worse. I mean, it's just a head scratcher how Brady has weapons. I know Brady's at his own age there where people are questioning should he come back. But he still has the weapons, Chris, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, you get the feeling that they could explode any week, but the more and more time gets on, these guys are really underachieving. And, and I think it all comes down to, you know, what's the missing thing? Todd Bowles has got to be to blame, man. I mean, did it, I wouldn't think they'd have this problem if Arians was around. I mean, they, he was an offensive coach. Um, you know, and I never liked Bowles. I tell you, when he was up in New York, I got a close look at him. He's not a good coach. And uh, I think you're seeing a lot of that on the offensive side right now but uh that left which as as the offensive coordinator i don't know i mean at one point he was a hot coaching candidate chris i think that's gone down right now but yeah that they can win that division i expect them to but um unless they can figure out a way to score points with those weapons uh there's going to be a lot of heads rolling there the lions keep coming bob they're uh they're back to 500 now won six of the last seven games with Three winnable games remaining on their schedule. They're at the Panthers, then home against Chicago, and then they go to Green Bay. Only half a game behind the Commanders for that final playoff spot. Can they get it done? You know, even though I picked against them last week, I wasn't mad that they won because you got to like this team. Again, I have a lot of friends that have been Lion fans suffering for a long time, Chris. I like Campbell. I like, I just like the, the way they're sneaking up on people and their approach. I mean, the defense is still not good, but, you know, they showed grit in, in, in overcoming the Jets. Um, but yeah, they could probably get, you know, as you said, you know, a little help here and just to see them. And, you know, under him, it looks like they're going to improve every year. Um, and, you know, Minnesota, probably a paper champion in that division. So, I mean, Detroit is the team right now that you probably would not want to play. If they got there, it'd be just because they're hungry and they've scored more points than anyone in that division. Bob, uh, I also want to get your thoughts on the latest uh, contract now out for the NFL Sunday ticket. Uh, their wow. their uh, contract with DirecTV expires this year. We learned today that uh, they're going over to YouTube who is going to pay a half a billion dollars more per year than what DirecTV was paying in the current contract. NFL is also looking to license the commercial rights to bars and restaurants for another $200 million. Bob, money keeps on flowing into the NFL. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I uh, read about this today, and uh, the first thing that came to my head, 
The NFL is a money-making machine. We always say that, Chris, and this just shows you, I mean, how they can put out a couple billion dollars a year and everybody is going to, uh, to make out. Uh, probably the ones who pay for it are people like you and I, but, you know, it's, uh, they try to water that down into all the publicity, but, you know, I mean, back in 94, when DirecTV did this, people were saying, ah, you know, it, can it last? Can it last? And now here we are years later and we see those kind of, uh, money being thrown out. And, and, and mind you, they're going to be making a lot of money putting that out. So it is, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's incredibly, uh, you know, Chris, as far as what they do to uh, continue the money-making process. But if you know the NFL is in on it, I mean, it, this is going to be huge. And, uh, you know, YouTube TV, from what I hear, I don't have it, but people are kind of telling me it, it, it's pretty good. So if they get a good reputation and people start buying into this, uh, you know, there's a monopoly going to be going on. <laughs> All right, let's move along to our Unsung Hero of the Week Award. Bob, who's a lesser-known player that really impressed you last week? Well, you know, uh, we love our undrafted free agents because you know this. So that's the first thing I look at when I'm almost looking for a guy. And this guy jumped right out at me because I actually saw highlights of him uh, and somebody I think had mentioned, you know, rookie that was undrafted. And it's the Saints wide receiver Rashi. Let me get his name correct. This is not easy to say, Chris. Rashi Shahid. Say that five times quick. Okay. <laughs> Rashi Shahid. I mean, he had come into the game, Chris. Again, free agent, unsigned, out of Weber State. Not a football factory, okay? Had been only thrown to, I think, he caught 12 receptions the entire year uh, and did catch a touchdown earlier in the year, but hasn't been targeted more than 20 times. Well, he comes into this game, he catches three balls only, but one of them was for six, 68 yards, uh, 95 yards on the day, Chris, his second touchdown of his career, and that basically fueled them to that three-point victory over the Falcons. So, again, Rashid Shahid of the Saints, maybe he's something they can build around in the future, Chris, but I was glad to see that guy. Again, undrafted free agent, Weber State. Nobody's ever heard of him, but now you have. Yeah, that's awesome. And I got a, I got a tough one to pronounce, too, because my unsung hero of the week is 49er safety, Talanoa Hufanga. He's wow. in his second year with the 49ers, only started three games last year in his rookie season, started all 14 games so far this year. Kid's a fifth-round draft choice out of USC. After having 32 tackles in his rookie season, he's all already more than doubled that so far this season. He's got 76, which is tied for third on the team. He also has four interceptions, one of which was a pick six, two sacks, two forced fumbles. Well, this past weekend, he has five tackles, one sack, one pass defended, and he, uh, and a quarterback hit, uh, over in their win over the Seahawks has a, has a monster game for them. And, uh, that's why he's my unsung hero awesome. of the week. It's time for another edition of Bob Take. So, Bob, tell us, what's on your mind tonight? Let's get into this week's edition of Bob's Take. And Bob, I want to do uh, I want to do one. We've got our first guest, Fred Lynn, hanging on the line. I want to get to Fred as soon as we can. So let's talk about this one because um, it's something we have gone back and forth throughout the season. The Colts have benched Matt Ryan 
again, in favor of Nick Foles this time. Want to get your thoughts. Is this the end of the line for Ryan? You know, Chris, uh, when they brought him back that second time, you know, after the benching, I, I thought it was the right decision. I, I'm, I'm still not, you know, totally sold that it wasn't the right decision. I mean, you know, if you had a chance in the playoffs, you're going to go to a guy that was probably a future Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, look at his numbers, Chris, still completing 67% of his passes. I know the interceptions are up. I think he leads the league in interceptions right now, but, you know, just as of two years ago, he led the league in completion, Chris. But uh, the numbers are going down a little bit. He's going to be 38 years old soon, and I, I can't argue with the fact that, you know, maybe it's time for him. I, I don't know if Indy wants to build around him at this point, and that's why you're seeing him going back and forth. But, man, a Hall of Fame career, it's, it's bad if he has to go out this way sitting on the bench. Uh, maybe he should have packed it in last year. Yeah, well, I sure hope someone else gives him an opportunity. I think he's still got some in the tank, you, to your point. It's not like yeah. the, the the completion percentage is way off. The turnovers are a problem. And yeah. uh, I think that's something that he can fix. He's a great player, and he certainly will end up in the Hall of Fame. So hopefully he gets another opportunity. All right, we've got our first guest, Fred Lynn, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Fred on the other side of this real quick station break. Thursday Night Tailgate, where the spotlight is always on the positive. Tune in Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time to hear your favorite NFL legends, players, and coaches sharing their stories. Now back to Chris and Bob. I wouldn't joke about anything else that happened to you tonight. All right. Now joining us is former all-star outfielder Fred Lynn. Let me give you some background on Fred. He's from Chicago, Illinois, but moved very early out to Southern California when he was one. He was a four-sport star in high school, which Bob loves. He played baseball, football, basketball, and track. He was drafted by the New York Yankees, but chose to attend USC instead, thank God. He helped USC three-peat in the College Baseball World Series in 1971, 72, and 73, then was selected by the Boston Red Sox in the second round of the 1973 draft. He only spent two seasons in the minor leagues before being called up to Boston late in the 1974 season and full-time in 75. That 75 season, he became the first player in Major League history to win the Rookie of the Year and the MVP awards in the same season. In his seven years in Boston, Fred hit 308 with 124 RBI, uh, 124 home runs and 521 RBIs. And another one of the dumbest trades in Red Sox history, he's traded to the California Angels in January of 1981. In 82, he helped the Angels win the American League West Division. Despite falling to the Milwaukee Brewers in the ALCS, Fred was named the ALCS MVP, becoming the first player on a losing team to win that award. In 81, despite being only in the league for seven of his 17 years, Lawrence Ritter and Donald Honick included Fred in their book, The 100 Greatest Baseball Players of All Time. Then in 83, Fred hits the first Grand Slam in All-Star Game history. He would go on to play for the Orioles, Tigers, and Padres over the rest of his career. Finished up being a nine-time All-Star, won four gold gloves, and 96 is inducted into the USC Hall of Fame in 2002 into the Red Sox Hall of Fame. In 2007, inducted into the National College Baseball Hall of Fame, and then in 2011, inducted into the Ted Williams Museum and Hitters Hall of Fame. In July of 2017, he goes out and he is inducted into the Omaha College Baseball Hall of Fame, and we are so excited to have him with us tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Fred, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Fred. 
Hi, Chris and Bob. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Brett, I got to talk to you earlier this year over on the golf show on Next on the Tee. You were working on your golf game. Did you get the <laughs> handicap back down to two? No, um, probably hovering around four. But I did something about go that uh, I really hadn't thought about for a while. Um, I'm 70 years old, and I shot a 69. So wow. uh, I shot my age, nice. yeah, for the first time I, I shot my age, and for the first time uh, ever, I played a bogey-free round of golf. So it was um, it was pretty cool, to be honest with you. Oh, Dow, good for you. <laughs> yeah. Fred, I, 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 I got to get you. I said that over the air, but, you know, that was just a once-in-a-lifetime thing, guys. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the fellows <laughs> are giving you no stroke. So now that it's out no, there. right. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get your thoughts on what's going on around Major League Baseball. I mean, you know, as a Red Sox fan, both Bob and I are Red Sox fans, you know, seeing Xander Bogarts go out there to San Diego, your neck of the woods, on a 12-year or 11-year, $280 million contract, Carlos Correa, 12 years, 300 and whatever it was, $40 million contract. I, when you're looking at, at, at the years and the contract dollars of what's getting thrown around Major League Baseball, are you amazed? Are you astounded? Do you think, well, good for them? What are your thoughts about what you're seeing? Really good to be a shortstop right now, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> I think what the clubs are doing, instead of giving them $60 million a year, they're just adding it on to the backside. Um, you know, they're, they're paying basically 11-year, you know, 12-year contracts. They're paying less money, you know, you factor in and those kinds of things, which I'm sure they do. But anyway, they want to lock these guys up uh, for as long as they can, obviously. These are cornerstones to your ball club. When you think about the way teams used to be built, now I'm talking about right through the middle of the diamond, center, short, second, and catcher, now that there's no shift, now the shortstop becomes very important again because his range is paramount to having a great infield defense. So that's why the shortstops are, you know, they're making them some big bucks and they're, they're signing them to long-term contracts. But these guys are young. So yeah, they're going to spend their end of their careers probably wherever they just signed. And Fred, you talk about how the game used to be played and, and Bob and I are big fans of the, the way the game was played back in the seventies, you eighties know, when, when you had leadoff guys that were getting on base and stealing bases, putting pressure on defenses and, and, uh, you know, the heart of the order was there to drive those guys in. And, and now the game seems like it's a, a home run or strikeout game. Not, not quite as much fun to watch for me, in, in my opinion, as, as it was during your playing career. What are your thoughts about how the game is played now? Yeah, I'm not a, a big fan of that either. I mean, you guys hitting 200, they actually have jobs. Um, that wouldn't happen in the 70s or 80s or any time that I played or guys all guys play. You hit 200, you were looking for work. In today's game, if you can hit 30 home runs or 25 home runs and hit 200, yeah, and that's kind of acceptable. Um, I kind of like to play small ball, and you're probably going to see a little more of that with the 18-inch bases. I think you're going to see more guys try to steal. I mean, how many times have you seen a guy get thrown out a second, bang, bang? Well, now they'll be safe. Um so I, I think the game's going to change back a little bit. You know, it's going to, Pendleton has swung <laughs> a long way from little ball to just home run derby. 
So now it's going to probably start inching back towards the middle. And I think you're going to see more teams run, especially at the top of the order. Of course, if Aaron Judge is second, you know, I don't think he's going to run much. But <laughs> uh, having said that, you know, I think you're going to see more teams have speed. And I think they're going to try to score more without hitting home runs, which is actually more fun to watch. You have an right. inning where you get five or six base hits in a row without the advent of a home run. That's fun to watch. Guys are running around. Guys are, guys are playing defense or throwing, you know, trying to throw guys out. Um, lots of things are happening on the field. But if you get a guy just hits one 400 feet, well, you know, he circles his base. And, you know, okay, big deal. Um, so I, I hope the game is swinging back that way. And I, I'd like to see it, just like you guys. Fred, like I mentioned in your intro, you were a four-sport star growing up in high school, and, and you actually attended USC on a football scholarship. Talk about your football days at SC. Um, yeah, when I was in high school, I was being recruited to uh, most of the major for football. And let's face it, you know, that pays great. So baseball was, was always going to play baseball. But a lot of uh, major schools weren't going to give you a baseball scholarship. Just too expensive to do. So when I went to SC to play football, <clears throat> my teammates were uh, Lynn Swan and Sam Cunningham, those kind of guys. And, you know, I was a wide receiver uh, on offense, and I backed up Swan because we're both flankers. And on defense, I was a corner. Um, and because I, I had good speed and, you know, I, I like to hit people. So, you know, in those days, it was run first, pass second. So you had to tackle a lot at the defensive back. And I think if I would continue my career in football, I probably would have ended up at free safety, not strong safety because I was too small, 170 pounds. But free safety, free safety is just like playing center field. It, you, you know, you don't, you're, you're pass defense first and you're tackling second. And that would be a perfect fit for me. It just, uh, you know, baseball just kind of won out there, and I had to make a decision as a sophomore. And I, I fortunately, I was able to change my scholarship to baseball. And you know, that I could see the handwriting on the wall, 170 pounds, you know, getting away 30 or 40 pounds tackling these guys probably was not a, a long term solution for me. Having played at SC with, with Lynn Swan. Did Swan never bring you out to Pittsburgh during the, the heyday there in the 70s? Did you get to be a part of and watching a game, being at being at Three River Stadium or any of the Super Bowls? No, you know, I I, I watched him as his old teammate. You know, I I was always pulling for all the SC guys, and and the NFL was loaded with him early seventies. And of course, Swanee, you know, he went to Pittsburgh and he said one. I think they won four Super Bowls. So yeah, it was fun to watch him. No, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I just watched it on TV like the rest of the country. But uh, you know, he. He had a wonderful career. He's a Hall of Famer, and he's a member at uh, Augusta. Twenty, right. if you're listening, uh, I know you're a member. <clears throat> I do play golf. <laughs> Was that Shane? Five <laughs> questions for Fred. Yeah, Fred, it's an honor to speak with you, and uh, I, I, I think back on your career. And I attended Fordham University in New York City between '78 and '82, and I. I was basically in the uh, bleachers in the right field stands uh, almost every home game. So I got to see both of the Red Sox and the Angels. And again, uh, some incredible memories, and I want to thank you for that. But I want to go back to 74 when you uh, were 
got called up with the Red Sox. Fred, I mean, just give me your, uh, uh, everyone probably wants to know, your first impression when you first walked into Fenway Park. What was the feeling like? Yeah, that's a great question. And, <clears throat> and our dugout, first base dugout, so when you're walking into the stadium, come to our dugout, you look out the monster. I mean, it's so big and green. It look like you could touch it from the dugout. And uh so I went out early before the rest of the guys were out there. And I was just kind of strolling around. You know, I was checking out the wall and the concrete. Um, and then I went to center field, and I, I was thinking about all the, the great players that played before me. Uh, not only Red Sox players, but Yankees, you know, Mantle and DiMaggio and Babe Ruth played there and Kearsall and all these guys. Um, so I was, I had a lot of emotions that were coming through me at that time when I was like 22. And um, it, was, it was like uh, walking into history. It was really cool, to be honest with you. And then to top it off, uh, I'm looking at my teammate uh, in 1974, and I was a giant fan when I was a kid. So Juan Marshall and Orlando Cepeda are my teammates. And these are ex-giants. Great. And, you know, they happened to be playing for the Red Sox at the time. And you mentioned I'm from Chicago, and Louis Aparicio uh, was an all-time great White Sox. He's a so <laughs> I was like a kid in a candy store. I'm playing in a great ballpark, lots of history, and I'm playing with guys. They're my teammates that I used to watch as a kid. I was like, well, can it get any better than this? Terrific, and and you know that '74 season, Fred. I mean, you showed you can play. I mean, hitting 419. In uh, 51 plate appearances, and uh, you probably thought to yourself, "Man, I I think I made it. I think I can, I can play at this level." And and but did you ever foresee yourself putting up the numbers you did the following year? You know, leading the league in a bunch of categories. Do you think it would happen that fast? Uh, no, I probably didn't really think about it like that. Um, you know, I was just when I played sports, I just always tried to do the best I could to help my team win. You know, those are the only thoughts I. Um, but when I got to Fenway, you know, we, we had a we had a really good team. And I had some good hitters in front of me and behind me, and that always helped. And um, after about uh, probably just a few weeks into the season, I changed my swing. I was a dead pole hitter coming into uh, Fenway Park. I pulled everything. Just, that's the way I hit. And then I saw that wall out there, and I said, well, I need to be able to utilize that wall. Uh, because it wasn't padded, so guys tried away from it. So I, I kind of changed my swing a little bit, and I started moving the ball the other way. And boy, that just opened up the game for me, because now I'm a, I'm a tough out because you can't pitch me any one way. And when you're a rookie back then, they didn't know you, you didn't know who was pitching. But I thought I had the advantage because I still have to throw it over the plate. But they just don't know what I can hit and what I can do. So you know, there's a big learning curve, uh, especially early on when you're a rookie. Everybody in the league is trying to figure you out. Um, I knew I could hit, and if you threw me a strike, I'm going to hit it. And I had Jimmy Rice and Pud behind me, so that made it a, a whole lot easier, believe me. Fred, you mentioned that you grew up a Giants fan, and the Dodgers actually had an earlier pick in the draft in 74 than the Red Sox did. Would it have hurt if the Giants had, or if the Dodgers had drafted you, could you have put on a Dodger uniform? What would that have been like? <laughs> well, funny that you brought that up. 
uh, my college coach, Rod Dado, was great friends with Tommy Lasorda and the O'Malley's and Camp Panis. These are the, you know, the owners and the GM and the manager of the Dodgers. They were all pals. And USC had a great relationship with the Dodgers. In fact, we used to play them in spring training. It was like their last game before the season started. SC versus the Dodgers, and there'd be 55,000 people. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. We played against the Dodgers at, at their place. So we had a relationship. In fact, uh, the Dodgers scout that was scouting me at the time wanted to draft me in the first round, and he got overruled by somebody in the organization, and they tried to get me in the second round, and they were at the podium with the uh, Red Sox, and the Red Sox were one step ahead of them, and they took it. But uh, I thought, I God, to be honest, with the relationship that my coach had with Tommy, sort of, and the, uh, the brass for the Dodgers back then, I thought I was going to be a Dodger for sure. I was shocked when I was a drafted by him. Fred, I want to take a step back uh, into your time in college because not only did you guys win three straight college World Series, but in 73, when you guys get there, you're actually in a game playing against the University of Minnesota. You guys are trailing 7 nothing in the bottom of the ninth. Dave Winfield is on the mound for, for Minnesota. You guys come all the way back in the bottom of the ninth to win it. Where does that rank in the greatest comebacks ever? Number one. <laughs> you ever get Dave on the show, make sure you mention that. <laughs> He'll love you. <laughs> well, okay, so Winfield's pitching, and we knew, you know, you look at him, 6'6", six, six, and, you know, he, he threw hard. But he had a really good off pitch, and he had some kind of break ball. I can't remember what it was. But he struck out a whole bunch. And he was really getting us out with the other stuff, not his fastball. You know, he could still throw, he could almost throw a bias. He was telling you it was coming. But it was the off-speed stuff that was getting. So, we made an adjustment as a team, uh, in the 1980s. These guys were all over. There was fence jockeying back in those days. And they were just all over. So, we get a couple hits, boom, 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 boom. We scored eight runs with one out. In fact, they took Dave out of the game after we scored like four, something like that, and then put him in left field. So they bring in somebody else and, and boom, 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 boom. And, <laughs> Their coach wants to bring Dave back in because, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> and so, yeah, we ended up scoring eight runs with just one out. And, wow. uh, uh, it was the, the unbelievable comeback. Uh, and then we had to play for the championship. That wasn't the championship game. It felt like it, but it wasn't. Uh, but it was just an unbelievable feeling, uh, of euphoria and to see those guys. They were laid out on the field. Couldn't believe it. And I, I heard the story that the Dodgers were playing that night <clears throat> in Dodger Stadium. And like I said, they were big SC people. So they knew it was a college world series and they threw up our score on the scoreboard. Uh inning by inning. And in the last second, you know, they threw up an eight spot, boom, in the bottom of the night. The place went crazy because it's, you know, it's an SC town. And uh so I, I heard that story you know, related to me by uh, many people that were there. And they, they couldn't believe it. You know, all, you know, the Dodgers, the Dodgers were flat. So it was a pretty cool moment. Fred, I got to get your thoughts on where the Red Sox are now. I mean, we've gone through free agency in the winter meetings and 
They're a team that has uh, finished last two of the last three years. Not a lot of splash that came from free agency and in, in those meetings too. They signed a couple here or there with with Jansen as a, as a closer, which they needed. But where do you where do you see the Red Sox now, and and what do they got to do in order to get themselves back in a in an AL East race? I think you're going to have to play some of that small ball that you talked about. I'm a little concerned uh, on their run scoring ability because I don't think they have that. You know, they're not going to hit a lot of home runs. I don't believe they they could they could fool me. You never know. But I think they're going to have to play more small ball, and I think they're going to have to uh, run a lot, hit and run, do all those kinds of little things that you used to do to score. It's nice to have a great closer, but you got to get to it. Um, so I think that's that's going to be a big deal. How many runs can they score yeah, each day? Because, you know, there's some teams in that division that have serious fire. So I don't know if they're going to be outgunned. You never know. never know. When you put a bunch of guys together, they might click. And who knows? They, they might like they revert back to the old way. A lot of doubles, singles, score that way. You can still get it done like that. Play great defense, pitch. You can still win like that uh, without relying on the long ball. But in today's game, it, it is a tough, tough road to hope. Sure. Bob, one more for Fred before we let him go. Yeah, sure, Fred. I mean, we we could go on and on, but uh, I'm going to pick from my uh, question bag here and just talk about the. Uh, I think what goes under the radar is, is your fielding ability. I mean, obviously, at the monster offensive seasons in 75, 79 was arguably, arguably better. But the four glow, gold gloves in Boston seems to me to go under the radar screen. It's probably something you probably took a lot of pride in. And, uh, did it ever, did it always come naturally to play the outfield like that? I, I, I thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I always consider myself a defender first. And a hitter second. So, you know, when you play those other sports like we spoke of, you know, my job was to shut people down. I played football. I always guarded the other team's best guy. When I played basketball, I guarded the other team's shooter. Um, so my job was to play great defense. And I always carried that into baseball as well. And because I played those other sports, I had the footwork. I never really had to think about running the uh, route to the baseball. When you were a DB and you're following somebody or you're on the basketball court, your feet, you're taught all these drills uh, for football. So it was a great asset to play center, to be able to utilize all those other skills from the other sports that I had. So I didn't really have to think about how to maneuver my feet or get myself a position to catch the ball. I had all that down. I just had to know the hitters and the ballpark situation, you know, the weather, those kinds of things, factor all those things in. And the way I play defense is every pitch ball is being hit to me. So I'm I'm constantly fidgeting, moving. Uh, I had the advantage of playing center. You can see where the ball is being pitched. And sometimes you can lean that way. Ball's outside might go the other way. The hitter's trying to swing. Um, but the key is move. You know, just keep moving. The ball's hitting me on every pitch. You can't let up. Um, I didn't want to let my pitcher down. I didn't want my team down. I want these balls falling in. I didn't want these balls. They weren't home runs. I wanted to catch them. <laughs> Plain and simple. Yeah, I don't care if the ball's padded or not. Uh, I knew how to take a hit because play football. So I, I knew how to uh, catch balls against the wall. Yeah, I, I got whacked a few times, but that's the fun part. That's the fun part. Taking away uh, runs from the other team. 
one of the plays I'm most proud of, playing the Yankees, first game of a doubleheader in safety in 1975. And I took a, a ball away from uh, Greg Nettle in a one nothing game that we won. Uh, and it was, that's what's fun. When you, you demoralize the other team in their place, <laughs> you just take this air right out of the stage. Sure. So cool. Fred, before we let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the things you're doing and follow you on social media. Well, I, I do have a Twitter account and, and, uh, you know, I try to stay socially active. I'm not, you know, 70, so I'm not the best at it, but you know, I, I get my way through it. Um, I do have, uh, my wife and I, we represent an organization called the uh, Face for Pets. It's an organization here that in San Diego, that uh, we save pets from being euthanized. If they, they have a military family has a pet that they can't uh, take care of, it needs a, a surgery or something. Anyway, the Face Foundation steps in there and they save these animals, and that's a charity that we support. And if anybody wants to look them up, FaceForPets.org, uh, you can check it out and uh, they may make a donation to save a pet's life. That's awesome, Fred. Thank you so much for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of this show. You're fantastic, my friend. We hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. Well, let's do it with a start, and we'll, we'll see how things are shaking down for the boys and uh, see how they're playing. There you go. There you go. Fred, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and your family. We look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Merry Christmas. Thanks, Fred. Thank you, too. That is the great Fred Lynn. Face for pets, Bob. Right up your alley, my friend. What what a fantastic, first of all, Fred's a fantastic interview. So many yeah, great right. stories. And then to end it with that, that's tremendous. Yeah, he's uh, he's just a very incredibly, you know, well-schooled guy. And, uh, you know, that, that gowly approach to defense uh, really was, was such an honor watching him, Chris. I mean, people forget what kind of numbers him and Rice put up in Boston and how enjoyable it was when baseball was being baseball we could do a whole show on that uh if you yes. look at fred that one year i mean he had actually had six sacrifices in that mvp year but uh what what a, what an interview and uh hopefully we can do it again soon chris yeah very much looking forward to that all right we've got our next guest tony collins hanging on the line the hard charging tony collins we'll get to him and right after this quick station break You're listening to Thursday Night Tailgate with Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazari, where NFL legends live on. Back to you, boys. He's a lot. All right, now back with us to go through our five-star picks of the week is the hard-charging former Patriots Pro Bowl running back, Tony Collins. Tony, how are you, my friend? Hi, Tony. You're doing fantastic. How you doing, Chris and Bob? We're doing good. Okay, You're doing Tony. even better. Because uh, <laughs> last week, Tony, Tony has a, everything fell right for Tony, just about. Tony goes four and one. Bob has an uncharacteristic losing week of two and three. Yeah. I was three and two, but Tony shaves half of the deficit off coming from four games back to now only two games back. So hope still reigns supreme, Tony. <laughs> I'm coming back, baby. I'm, I'm after you, Bob. Come on. I, well, I, I took. <laughs> Chris, I told you in the past, I don't want an ex NFL running back with revenge on his mind coming after me. And, that, and that's what's <laughs> happening right now. <laughs> that's great. So let's 
let's take a look back. Uh, we all correctly picked the Bills over the Dolphins. Tony, you and I were, were right taking the Lions over the Jets. Tony, you took the Jags in an upset over the Cowboys. Congrats, my friend. That was that was the big one for you. Bob and yeah. I both uh, went with Dallas. And then we all uh, correctly picked the uh, Chargers over the Titans. So, And then uh, all, all wrong in taking the Commanders uh, over the Giants. The Giants won in that game. So here we are. Bob is 21 and 9. Tony is 19 and 11. I'm 18 and 12. So Bob's come back to us a little. So it's uh, back to anybody's game. So so good job there out is. of you, Tony. Bob, thanks for coming back to the Packers. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't a plan. <laughs> All right, let's get into this week's games, and we're going to start out with tonight's game: the six and eight Jags at the fading seven and seven Jets. The Jets are a two and a half point home favorite. Tony, the Jets have lost three in a row. The Jags have won two straight. Who keeps the streak going? You know, I you know watching the game last week uh, when the Jags beat the uh, Cowboys. You know, they 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 have the talent on offense. I just kind of worry about their defense a little bit. But but tonight I'm 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 not a big believer in Wilson man I just uh I just don't think he he he's ready to take them to the next level so I'm I'm gonna go with the Jaguars again you know I think it'll be a close game but I I think the Jaguars will pull it off simply because of uh, their talent on offense so I'm going uh, twenty to seventeen Jaguars all right look close Bob who do you like. Hey, I got it just like Tony almost. I mean, again, after I saw that Jet performance last week, I, 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 in my right mind, I can't pick them again. That was just brutal to watch. Wilson's not, they're not the same team even without Mike White. And Wilson's just not ready. Uh, and, uh, the confidence that Jacksonville's showing this week is definitely coming through. So I'll have a 24-17 Jacksonville. All right, and I'm with you guys. I, I like the Jags in this one, too. I've, I've seen nothing from Zach Wilson, like you guys are saying. Completely an uninspiring season from him. He barely completed 50% of his passes last week against the Lions. They've lost three of his last four starts, averaging 14 points over those starts as well. And you, you just can't win a game that way. Jags offense on the other hand, very hot. Those guys are playing really good ball. They've scored 28 or more in three of their last four games. Trevor Lawrence is showing you why. He was the number one overall pick last season. Since week six, he's completing 68% of his passes, 16 touchdowns to just three interceptions. So a lot to like about the Jags, not much to like outside of the Jets' defense. So I'm with you. I'm taking the Jags to win this game 27-20. Our second game is the 8-5-1 and Giants at the 11-3 and Vikings. The Vikings are a four-point road favorite. Tony, you haven't been on the Vikings bandwagon all season. They've only got the two more points that they've scored than they've given up, which doesn't seem like a team that would be 11 and three. Are you picking against them again this week? They, they are the worst 11 and three team I've ever seen in my life. I, I but, but they, they, they just keep winning, you know, down 33 to nothing. I mean, come on. Right. It's, it's just the same how, 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 uh, <laughs> the, the coach messed that up, but. But anyway, you know, you know, going with the Vikings, you know, they're playing at home. Uh, they're just coming off a, a win that, you know, probably the biggest, uh, upset, uh, not upset, but comeback in NFL history. So I'm, they, they, they got the momentum. Giants going into the Vikings stadium. Uh, I, I got to go with the Minnesota Vikings as bad as I hate them, but I just think they're going to win again. Uh, so I'm going with Minnesota 
Uh, 27-17, Minnesota. Okay. Bob, who do you like in this one? I'm with Tony on this one. I mean, Minnesota, I mean, I think everyone knows right now, if you can contain Barkley, you're going to beat the Giants. I mean, uh, they're not scaring anybody. They're going to Minnesota. Minnesota, uh, shake off that rust from last week. I think they kind of cruise in this one, guys. 34-20, Minnesota. I'm very close to that same score with the Vikings. I'm, r- I'm right there with you, Bob. As, as much as Tony doesn't like the Vikings, is how much I don't like the Giants. I, I'm surprised they won last week. I can't, I still can't believe they beat the Commanders. An offense that struggles to score 20 points is going to be able to keep up with the Vikings. Their offense is averaging 25 points for the season, but they're averaging 30 in, in, uh, five of their last six games. And then Justin Jefferson, my goodness, that guy's just unstoppable. Had over a hundred yards now nine times this season, leads the league in receiving yards. And you throw in Dalvin Cook, who's sixth in the league in rushing yards. Way too much offense. Giants. So I've got the Vikings winning at 34 to 16. Our third game is a 10 and 4 Bengals going to Tony slumping 7 and 7 Patriots. Bengals are a three point road favorite. Tony, you picked against your boys for the first time ever this season. They've lost three of their last four. You picking against them again? Could this be number two? (laughs) (laughs) You know, watching the game last week, I don't know why they would even run a play like that at the end of the game. You know? Yeah, what was I that, Tony? Help, help I, me uh, out. I can see, what was that? I can see, I can see if they were, they were behind or they were losing. I can see that. But right. It's a tie game. You're going to go in overtime. Okay, so if, it, if the worst comes to worst, throw the Hail Mary. They knock the ball down or, or you know, I mean, if something a miracle happens and we catch the ball and we win the game. But you never run a play where See, here's the thing. First of all, I'm 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 going to uh, Belichick on this. Why would you run the ball? And here's the thing: if you're going to run the ball, I'm pretty sure they told him if you get you get out in the open, you know, pitch it back or whatever. But why not just throw the hail mary and go into overtime and win the game? So I mean, right. you know. I'm just so confused with that, and I, you know, you can't, you can't blame. You know, everybody's looking at Jacoby and blaming him for that. I mean, it was a dumb, dumb mistake that he did. But why even put that guy in that in that situation for him to even do that? So anyway, as much as I love my patience. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta catch up with Bob, and and I can't, can't lose, any, can't lose any strikes right now. Cincinnati's playing good football. Burroughs, um, you know he's he's gonna be a, a elite quarterback in this league. He, he, and, you know, I think the kid is just just great. He's got the offense, got the running back, got. As much as I hate to do this. I gotta go with the Bengals again. There I, you I, go. I just can't. I can't. I can't pick the Patriots. And I just. I, and, and and the reason I can't pick the Patriots because why would why would Belichick put your team in that situation? And and that's why I'm going with the Bengals. And it's not gonna be nice. Thirty-seven, seventeen, Bengals. Wow, the Tony Collins blowout special of the week against the Patriots. 
Man, this is getting better all the time. I'm really, I'm really sad to say that. Really, really sad. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, what do you think? I think Tony's right in there, you know, locked into reality. Now, I, there's no way New England wins this game. I mean, they, they don't have an offensive coordinator. Uh, I thought, I think that play that Tony referred to, that just ended their season last week. And Burrow, I think, is already close to an elite quarterback. So, um, I think Cincinnati goes up to 30 to 20, Chris. Yeah, and that's you know, it's funny you say that because that's exactly the score I have too. I got the Bengals thirty to twenty. I just I just don't see anything to like, you know, about what the Patriots are doing. That that play last week was just the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I thought Mac Jones was the future. I'm starting to wonder now. He has more interceptions and touchdowns this season. You know, when you look at you know what, what's going on, I I, mm, I don't know what's happening up there. To your point, Bob, they don't have an offensive coordinator. That 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 whole situation. Is crazy. I, I like the Bengals as well. I think they they won six in a row. They're going to make it seven. I got it thirty to twenty. Our fourth game is the thirteen and one Eagles at the ten and four Cowboys. The Cowboys are a four and a half point home favorite. Since Jalen Hurts is going to be out, Gardner Minshew is going to get the start for the Eagles. So Tony, can the Cowboys go in there and take advantage of that and get a big win over Philly? You know, this is probably going to be the game to watch uh, uh, this weekend. Uh, because it, it's a, it's a big, it's a big conference game. Cowboys need to win this game. I got the opportunity to watch Minshew, uh, because he was at East Carolina for a year and the kid is good. I mean, he can throw it. He can run it. He has the ability to, to run the ball. He, I mean, he's not getting hurt, but he has mobility. He can throw the ball because I, I, you know, I got a chance to watch him at East Carolina, but I, I just think the Cowboys, uh, their defense, they're going to put pressure on him. And, you know, as a quarterback, you know, you don't get a lot of reps. I know he, I know he got a lot of reps this, this week, but, man, you know, going against a, a top defensive team like the Cowboys, it's going to be tough playing, playing in Dallas. Uh, I think it's going to be an exciting game because, like I said, Minshew, <laughs> the kid is good, man. He's going to put up some points. He's just not going to put up enough points. We're going to go 37-35. Cowboys. Wow. Okay. Bob, who do you like? Yeah, I think that was a great analysis by Tony. I mean, Philadelphia has not lost on the road, Chris. I mean, only one on the road, but one loss all season long. I was at home. So, but I think it ends here. Dallas is such a good home team. It's going to be electric atmosphere. Like Tony said, I mean, this is a 10 and 4 team. They want to hold on to that high seed. There's a couple teams right around them. So I think Dallas plays a complete game, and uh, it's just too much for Minshew to ask to go into that kind of environment and win. So I'm going to say Dallas, pretty high score like Tony. I'll say 34-24. All right, well, I'm going the other direction, and here's why. <laughs> to, to your points about Minshew, kid's, you know, kid's pretty good. I mean, he, he had a meaningful start last season against the Jets, had a decent game, 20-25, 242, and two touchdowns in their win. Now, he's going to need help from their running game and their defense. Defense is only allowing 19 points per game. The Eagles' offense is the fourth-best rushing offense, so handing the ball off doesn't matter who's handing the ball off if they're running and gaining yards. Miles Sanders, fifth in the league in rushing yards, 5.2 yards per carry. The Eagles won when these two teams played back in mid-October, but that's when Cooper Rush was the quarterback for the Cowboys, so Dak obviously is an upgrade. 
Uh, he's playing very well. He's competing 71% of his passes since he's come back, but he's thrown seven picks. That's the difference to me. I think the Eagles defense and the number one in the giveaway takeaway ratio, they're a plus 12 and they lead the league in interceptions with 15. I think Dak's going to give it to him a couple of times. They're going to get a short field and Minshew's going to lead him down there. They're going to run the ball and play good defense and they're going to score some points. So I'm going to go with the Eagles winning a close game. I like them 26 to 20. All right, our last game is the 6-8 and eight Packers at the 8-6 and six Dolphins. The Dolphins are a four-point home favorite, Tony. The Dolphins are clinging to that last playoff spot, lost three games in a row. Packers have won a couple in a row. Who do you like? I, and, you know, I, I don't know how, how healthy Tua is right now. I don't know if he's going to play on, on uh, Saturday or Sunday, whenever they play. But, uh, you know, the Dolphins, have a, they, they have a great defense. Um, the thing about uh, Green Bay right now is they're they're in a they're in a, uh, a, a situation right now where they have to win, you know, and they they have the quarterback. And when when you have a team that has to win, you you have and you have Aaron Rodgers. There there's a possibility that you can win because you have him and uh, at, at quarterback. Now here's the key: I don't know if two is going to play or not, but I, I just think. He's not healthy enough to play, and they shouldn't play him. I mean, I I, I think they they will make the playoffs, but why risk playing him uh, uh, on 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 this day for him to get hurt? And then they they won't even if they get to the playoffs, they won't they won't win without him. So I'm gonna go with the Packers. I just think Aaron Rodgers is is, is gonna is gonna show out uh, this weekend. Uh, it'd be a close game. Uh, uh, Twenty five. 23, Pack. Okay. Bob, who you got? I'm going to take Miami, Chris. This is where we're going to differ this week. I, I think Miami is just such a good home team, and Green Bay is not a good road team. Uh, don't know, like Tony said, too, or not, but it is out of all the teams playing this week, and Miami, I think, has to win the, the most. I mean, this is huge for them. They don't want to go 8-7, and seven, not in that either, even in that division. Never mind the entire uh, AFC with that kind of parity right now. So uh, I'm going to say Miami holds on, and, and they continue to be an incredibly good home team, and they're going to win that game 30-24. All right, and uh, Bob, I'm with you. I'm 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 taking the Dolphins this week, I, I, but I do think it's going to be a high scoring and a close game. The Dolphins' defense is 27th against the pass, and and Aaron Rodgers is starting to get a little comfortable with his new wide receivers. That kid, Christian Watson, wow, he's come from out of nowhere. Seven touchdowns in his last five games. I don't know that the Dolphins are going to have anyone that can match up with his speed, but the Packers' defense is is a huge concern. They're allowing almost 150 yards per game on the ground. The Dolphins can establish Raheem Mostert, who ran for 136 against a really good Bills defense last week. That's going to open up things for Tyreek Hill to get down the field. So I think it's going to be a high-scoring one. I think Miami hangs on to win. I like them 34-31. Tony, let uh, our listeners know again about your book and what you're doing with it. Uh, you can go to Facebook and DM me on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, hit me up. Uh, we've got the books out. Just trying to you know, get them into uh, schools uh, next year, uh, starting in January. So hit me up on, on, on Facebook and Instagram for the book. Tony, you're the best, my friend. 
Take care. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and yeah, the Collins man. family. We look forward to catching up with you again in a couple Merry weeks. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you guys. Thanks, right, Tony. Tony. That is the great Tony Collins and our five-star picks of the week. We've got our next guest, Fred Clare, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Fred on the other side of this real quick station break. Hear NFL legends, players, coaches, and media members from around the country sharing their insights and stories with us year-round. Here on Thursday night, tailgate, 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 tailgate. tailgate. All right, now back with us is former Giants general manager Fred Flair. Let me remind you about Fred's background. He's from Jamestown, Ohio, which is about halfway between Cincinnati and Columbus. He was a sports writer and editor for the Whittier Daily News, the Pomona Progress Bulletin, and the Long Beach Independent Press Telegraph. In the spring of 1969, he was covering the Dodgers during spring training down in Vero Beach when an assistant public relations department position became available and the Dodgers smartly hired him. In 1975, he became the Dodgers VP of Public Relations. In 87, Dodgers President Peter O'Malley named Fred their general manager, and they would go on to win the World Series the following year. Fred remained GM with the Dodgers through mid-1998. Since leaving the Dodgers, he's been a columnist and an analyst for MLB.com. He's hosted his own radio show called The GM's Corner on MLB.com Radio. He's worked with Scoutables.com, which is a great baseball analytics site. He's written a couple of wonderful books, My 30 Years in Dodger Blue and Extra Innings, Fred Flair's Journey to the City of Hope and Finding a World Championship Team, both very highly rated and available out there on Amazon.com. And we're honored he is back with us again tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Fred, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, Great to be with you guys. Fred, I want to start our time tonight by getting your thoughts on what's going on around Major League Baseball. Have you seen anything like this with the amount of money and the length of the contracts that have been thrown out there, particularly as we were talking earlier with Fred Lynn with the shortstop getting 10 to 12 year contracts worth between 300 and 400 million dollars? Could you have imagined when you were GM of the Dodgers that we'd be paying players like this? Uh, not at all, because keep in mind, in uh, 1988, when we won the World Championship, and all of this can be checked, I believe my payroll was about $15 million. So this is foreign territory, and uh, of course, I was in the game through uh, so many years and saw the uh, evolution of the game, the evolution of salaries, but we have never seen anything like what we've in uh, this uh, winter, this off season, uh, it's absolutely um, really uh, unbelievable in many ways, and uh, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, a number of these signings um, will end up in the uh, on the long term. Certainly, have to end up. History shows us in the regret category when you get to a certain point in those contracts. Fred, at what point? I mean, it's just how salaries are growing exponentially and the, and the dollars coming into all sports, not just Major League Baseball. We talk a lot about the NFL, obviously, on this show. But at some point, doesn't the house of cards have to crumble? I mean, when you look at how much it costs to go to a game, I mean, I remember as a kid going to see the Pirates when we were in Pittsburgh. And, you know, I'd, I'd go to Three Rivers Stadium. We'd pay $7 for a box seat down the third base line. 
here I live in Atlanta now, that same seat would cost $134. I, I can't imagine what it would cost in, in LA, New York, or Boston. But at, at some point, doesn't the game just become too expensive for the average family? The answer to that, uh, unfortunately, uh, with the direction that the prices have been headed is yes. Uh, the one thing that, uh, you always want to keep in mind, and I was fortunate to be with the great Dodger organization. We were the first team to ever draw, uh, three million people. And, um, the, the one thing that you always have to have concerns about is growing the game and keeping the game affordable. And I am very concerned about prices and how that affects uh, the uh, ability uh, and availability of young people and families to attend the game. So it is very, uh, very great concern of mine in terms of, uh, of what is happening. Uh, and obviously teams want to be competitive. I understand that. I was a very competitive person. I'm a very competitive person, but you have to use, um, good judgment. And, uh, and I think that, uh, the competitive spirit has gotten away from some of these teams and owners and general managers. And Fred, going back to your early days as GM of the Dodgers and speaking of how competitive you were in 77 and 78, you guys go to the world series, come up a little short against the Yankees, but you get revenge on them in 1981. How good did it feel to beat those guys in 81? Well, it was a, uh, extremely, uh, meaningful, uh, victory, world series victory for a, uh, a great group of players. Uh, because keep in mind, that was a team that was molded through the Dodger farm system. It was Garvey, Lope, Russell, Say, uh, the wonderful uh, Dusty Baker and Reggie Smith and Rick Mundy that uh, came in to the organization, uh, the pitching of uh, Fernando. So that really was a very uh, meaningful world championship. And meaningful, too, in, in terms that it had been uh, a number of years. Uh, the Dodgers' uh, previous world championship prior to 81 had been uh, in 1965 against the Twins. So uh, it, it meant a lot to the organization. It meant a lot to those players and some wonderful friends to, uh, to finally uh, accomplish that. Brother. Staying in that 77 season, I read that you really wanted to make that 77 opening day very special. Typically, the Dodgers home opener was played at night, but the average crowd was around 34,000 in a stadium that held 56,000 back back in the day. But prior to moving out to L.A., the Brooklyn Dodgers always opened with a day game. So you decided to change things up in 77 and do a game day opener. That was the year that the marketing campaign of Dodger Blue came out. Tommy Lasorda, that was his first year as the team's manager. Yeah, Frank Sinatra sing the national anthem. Talk about pulling out all the stops and the impact that had on, on launching the Dodgers forward. Well, you've done your homework, my friend. You have done your homework because I really felt 
I had become the head of the Dodgers marketing department. And I really felt we were missing an opportunity when the Dodgers had, uh, uh, other than their first opening day game in Los Angeles, uh, they had gone to night game. And the record will show this. You look at the attendance of the Dodgers opening the season with night games in April when it can be cooler, but it wasn't an event. And I wanted to establish an event of opening day. And I also, I really uh, took a page from the University of Michigan because I wanted to create what would be a almost a collegiate uh, atmosphere with the team, a professional team. But I wanted that spirit to come out and came up with the thought of establishing, and this had never existed in Brooklyn days. It didn't exist in the early years of the Dodger. I created the theme of Dodger Blue. And, uh, and it really, and we had the right guy to, uh, to paint the town, the city, uh, blue in uh, the wonderful communist sort of. So that really was the start of opening day as a major event. And now and in recent years, the first game to sell out the Dodger season is always opening day. So great memories of that. And I, I, uh, uh, reference that in terms of I, but it what is all really about we, the Dodger organization, the wonderful people in the Dodger organization who worked so hard to create that. And of course, Dodger Blue, uh, lives on in, um, uh, in all of its wonderful legacy today. Five questions, sir, Fred. Always wonderful to talk to you. Fred, we've had you both on the TV and the radio side, and you've been very gracious at the time. Thank you for that. I want to, uh, I'll get back to the, uh, the modern game in a minute, but I wanted to, uh, just take you back to your youth, Fred. I know you moved to California when you were a teenager, but growing up in the Ohio area, what were, who were some of your early sports heroes and your favorite sports? Tell us a little bit about your days back in Ohio. Well, I can recall as a very young person, my love for sports. I can recall, uh, listening to an announcer. I hadn't thought of his name. I think I have it right. Goes way back in history, Bill Stern. I can remember listening to the Cincinnati Reds game, an announcer, many have forgotten, uh, Wait Point. And, um, my, uh, I, I loved the game. My, what really got my interest in following it. I loved to play it. My brother was, became a great Cardinal fan and would clip out the box scores every day and put them in the scrapbook. And so I, I saw that and I thought that was really great to follow the game that closely in addition to the love of playing the game. My brother was a Cardinal fan. I became a fan of the Cincinnati Reds. And God bless my wonderful parents who took us to Crosley Field. And I can remember seeing the great Cardinal teams of Sam Usual and Eno Slaughter and um, Marty Marion and uh, Red Changes and so many great Cardinal players. And I became a fan of the Cincinnati Reds. And so uh, they weren't as glamorous as the uh, as the as the Cardinals. But I well remember. Uh, uh, Grady Hatton, the third baseman, Johnny Ryrostek, Hank Sauer. Those names uh, never left my mind. And when my parents took the family 
to see the Reds play the Cardinals at Crosley Field, probably in the late 40s, uh, 48, 49. I knew then, I knew then I wanted to spend my life in the game. And I've been so blessed to be able to do just that. Those are great memories, Fred. Uh, and I want to take you back to today's game. And let me just vent for a little bit. And Chris and I do this all the time. I don't know how much baseball you get to watch on a daily basis. But my whole problem with it right now, Fred, is it's not the game that I grew up with. I don't even think they should call it baseball anymore. We have no sacrificing strikeouts at a ridiculous pace. It's home run derby. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, they've outlawed a shift because guys are too one-dimensional. I can go on and on, Fred. Uh, I guess I think you can sympathize a little bit with what I'm saying. But do you see a lot of the same thing? I do, but I'll tell you something. I see a change coming. And I say that even though, uh, the, uh, uh the game, uh, is being adjusted, uh, really by, uh, in a way that it never has as far as the positioning of the players, of course, as far as the throws to first base. Tell you where I see change that's coming. One of the great things was to have Dusty Baker, dear friend for 40 plus years, be the manager of the uh, uh, world, world championship team. And now you see Bruce Bochy being hired. Uh, I think we're going to see a change back from all of the analytics. I, I don't agree at all with the changes that are being suggested. Uh, there's a fundamental way to play the game. My team was playing your team and you wanted to put every member of your defensive team with a left-handed batter on the right-hand side of the diamond. Go do it because mm-hmm. we will build an organization the, about the fundamentals of hitting, the fundamentals of playing the game, uh, the, the fundamentals of, uh, of, uh, of getting a man on first base, stealing the base, advancing. Playing solid defense. And I talk to enough great friends in the game who are some of the greatest who've ever played the game. And I can tell you almost to a man, they are not in favor of what's happening in the game today. The game needs baseball people. And that's that people will say, well, that just sounds like he's out of date, whatever. I know the game. I've been involved in the game really all of my life as a fan and being fortunate and blessed to be involved with the game for so many years. So I, I have hope because I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because the game of baseball is the greatest game that has ever been played. I have, it is absolutely the greatest game. We need to give the game a chance with the right people. Fred, let's switch gears a little bit, and I want to talk about the City of Hope. You were diagnosed not that long ago with a very serious form of skin cancer. You battled it a couple of different times, and the City of Hope is a place that, that really helped you in your battle with cancer. Talk about the diagnosis that you received and, and what the City of Hope did for you. Well, I, I appreciate that opportunity very much. The City of Hope in Doherty, California, and you can search and find the City of Hope 
is I, I term it the greatest team that I have ever been involved with because I have seen firsthand the work that they've done, the advancements that they make in battling cancer. I've had two surgeries where uh, cancer that struck me to a, a sunspot on my lip. Uh, I have most procedure where I was failed by the people who did that cancer advanced. So I know firsthand over the last six years what the City of Hope does and done everything I can. The book Extra Innings, Fred Clare's Journey to City of Hope, all the net proceeds go to City of Hope. Uh, more important than that, if you go to the reviews and, 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 uh, hear the reviews or read the reviews of the people who are familiar with the City of Hope, who've had life-saving experiences. So I'm just a, uh, uh, a great believer in the work that they do. And that's not to say that City of Hope, I'm a believer in all the great medical uh, institutions, whether it's the Mayo Clinic, whatever it may be, a great facility. The people who are struggling with their health need to uh, uh, become the captains of their own ship and, 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 and search and find the help that they need to do everything they can in the fight for survival and for the, uh, the beauty of, uh, of life. So uh, I spend my time doing everything I can to promote City Hope, and I've been very blessed that uh, Cheryl, my wonderful wife, and I have also been involved in starting a Fred and Cheryl Clare scholarship at USC Tech Medical for head and neck cancer. So uh, uh, the greatest uh, accomplishments, really, of my life have really, in my view, have really been more related to doing everything that I can to help fellow patients, to help uh, uh, people that I know and, and all people uh, find the best resources that they can in the battle against cancer. Fred, let's take that a step further because a mutual good friend of ours, Mike Whalen, and Mike is the mastermind for people who don't know behind the Golf Channel. He got it started back in the mid-90s. and he and I were communicating and he said that um, you've been you and the city of hope have done some miraculous things for him and for some people that he knows who are battling cancer and, and helping them find the treatment that they desperately need there at the city of hope. Talk about helping others through what you're doing, get the treatment that they need. Well, it shows what a small world we live in because I met, Michael through social media, through um, Twitter, because I saw that he had a battle against cancer. And I reached out to him and told him that if there was anything I could do or if he ever wanted to call me, because we were both dealing with head and neck cancer, as fate would have it. And sadly, a family member of Michael's, and he's, uh, I say this because he's uh, stated this on uh, social media, called me and said, Fred, he said, is there any way that you could help my family member get a meeting with City of Hope? I reached out to my contact. Michael called me on a weekend, on a Sunday. That night, he was talking to a representative of City of Hope, and that family member had the opportunity to go into City of Hope. Sadly, unfortunately, uh, it was steps too late because the advanced uh, cancer had advanced so far that he passed away in a matter of days. So uh, I think for all of us, here's what it comes to. In 
30 years with the Dodgers and a lifetime involved with the game, the most meaningful words that I ever heard came from the greatest player that I ever knew and had the honor to be in his company on a couple of meaningful occasions. Player was Jackie Robinson. And the words that Jackie used that are are used on our Celebration of Life Award that we've given at our golf tournament, celebrity golf tournament, where we've raised a half million dollars for City Hope. Jackie's words that we all need to keep in mind, because he was a true leader, a life not important, except on the impact it has on other lives. Think of those words. Remember those words. You don't have to be Jackie Robinson. You don't have to be Fred Claire. You don't have to be anyone other than yourself to use your ability, your best, to impact other lives in a positive way. That is the drive that lives within me. Fred, one more before we let you go. And I got to ask because you, you, you mentioned your, your second book and it's, and it's a fantastic read and it's, it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of really good stories and it hits you right between the eyes as soon as you open the front cover because the very first thing you read in the forward by Bill Plasky, who was a beat writer for the Dodgers is about a confrontation between you and Kirk Gibson <laughs> in Tommy Lasorda's office in the summer of 1990. Talk about not yeah. backing down from Gibby when he was trying to demand a trade. Well, uh, uh, Kirk, uh, bless his heart because our friendship grew from my signing of Kirk before the 88 season. Uh, but I do, Kirk, uh, was, uh, I had a good scouting report. Someone in baseball told me, Fred, at some point, and he does this in every, with, with, in an organization or with people. He will challenge you. He will judge you by how you stand up for that challenge. So Kirk, after this was, uh, I guess in maybe, uh, 91, where, uh, he, uh, there had been a, uh, an incident with his, uh, his wife, uh, felt threatened. He was, Kirk was not happy with the situation, uh, wanted to be traded, uh, made that known, appreciated the opportunity it had, and obviously a short but great career with the Dodgers. And so he made a request for a trade and he asked to see me one Sunday in a, in the Tommy's office. And, uh, so I went down to see him and Kirk, uh, said, Fred, I've told you that I want to be traded. I said, Kirk, I understand that. And I understand your reasons. And I will do everything you, I can. But I have a responsibility for the, to the Dodgers to do the best for this organization. And Kirk made one mistake. He said, you're not doing your job. You don't want to say that to someone who dedicates his life to his job and gives it everything he has. So Kirk and Guy got into a little shouting match that was heard throughout the clubhouse, I guess. But I'll never forget this. This was the Sunday before the All-Star game. And uh, I uh, remember that was on the Sunday. We had the All-Star break, and the Dodgers were going to open the second half in Chicago. And I asked to meet with Kirk and uh, and the uh, 
the uh, club youth room at Wrigley Field. I'll never forget the setting. I said, Kirk, I said, it's a good thing you have a mild-mannered agent because you, you got a hell of a temper. And he said, Fred, don't tell me about my temper. He said, when you put your glasses on the top of your head and got in my face, don't tell me about my temper. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I want to, I want to, I want to tell you something, Fred. I will give you everything I've got for as long as I'm a Dodger. And I said, I know that, Kirk. And I will tell you this. In my cancer journey, no one, well, there have been many, couldn't say no. But Kirk has been there supportive in every way that he possibly can. So out of that relationship, out of that meaningful year, Kirk, like many other friendships and bonds that develop, will last a, a lifetime. And uh, he has my greatest respect, and uh, none of us will ever forget uh, what he meant to the 1988 Dodgers. Fred, before we let you go. Let our listeners know, how can we stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing, that you continue to do, and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media? Well, the reason that I'm on social media, on Twitter, uh, Fred Flair, uh, on Facebook, is to two things, really, to promote the cause of City of Hope, and you will find, uh, and the book, Extra Innings, all the net proceeds uh, go to City of Hope. Uh, we also have a Fred and Cheryl Claire, uh, family fund at City of Hope that goes to head and neck cancer. And also on social media, you will find the Fred and Cheryl Claire scholarship fund that funds cancer research for head and neck cancer at, uh, USC. So I greatly appreciate and want to take the opportunity for your listeners and for all of those who have been supporting to give my greatest thanks, our greatest thanks for your support throughout this year and to wish you the very best of holidays. Well, Fred, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. You're doing such great things. We hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. Anytime. Take good care and happy holidays. Thank you, Fred. Merry Christmas. Take care, Fred. Bye. Bye. That is the great Fred Clare, Bob. 87 years young, Fred Clare, doing great things out there to help uh, folks with uh, with head and neck cancer. It's just it's it's a tremendous story. The book is a fantastic read, and that story with Gibson is unbelievable. He did he didn't get all of it because there's a, yeah. a a thought of from Bill Plasky thought that uh, some fisticuffs might have been thrown in that <laughs> little confrontation, and not from Gibson. Well, you know, I mean, Fred Clare brought such a scholarly approach to uh, to baseball, Chris, and, and his remarks on the current state of the game are, are spot on, and I, I hope he's correct in the direction where it might go. But um, he's joined us before, and, you know, we talk about Lasorda being the, uh, the guy that really led Dodger Blue, but Fred uh, gave so many years to that organization, and uh, my goodness, uh, he uh, he's continuing to do good things at his age, and uh, we just hope that he continues to do that and can come back very soon. Very much so. All right, we've got our next guest, Eddie Murray, hanging on the line. We're gonna get the Eddie on the other side of this real quick station break. This is Reggie Kelly, 
former Cincinnati Bengals and Atlanta Falcons tight end. And you're listening to TNT Thursday Night Tailgate. Brace yourself for the explosion. All right, now back with us is former Pro Bowl kicker Eddie Murray. Eddie was a seventh-round draft pick by the Detroit Lions in 1980 out of Tulane. Played in the league from 1980 to 2000 for the Lions, Cowboys, Redskins, Chiefs, Vikings, Eagles, and Bucks. Was selected to the Pro Bowl in 1980 and 89 into the 1980s All-Decade team. For his career, he made 76% of his field goals, 99% of his extra points, even punted five times for an average of 38 yards. Eddie still ranks 23rd all-time in points scored and field goals made. He was inducted into the Tulane Hall of Fame in 1987, the Greater New Orleans Sports Hall of Fame in 2006, and the Gridiron Grace Hall of Fame in 2014. And we are honored he is back with us again tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Eddie, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming Hi, back Eddie. on the show. Hey, Chris and Bob, happy holidays to you both. Ah, Merry Thank Christmas you. to you and yours. Yeah. Eddie? I, I do I, I do want to add, because I'm very proud of it, because of being uh, Canadian, uh, uh, I was inducted into the Victoria Sports Hall of Fame. We were throwing out accolades there, and that's one <laughs> thing I'm very honored, that my uh, hometown has recognized my accomplishments in the NFL. That's fantastic. And, you know, one awesome. of the things I wanted to ask you, Eddie, is because you're from Victoria, you know, at the end of your career, during, you know, subsequently at, at any point in your career, did the BC Lions ever reach out? Did you ever think about going and kicking in the CFL? Uh, no, I did not. The only time that there was consideration to it was uh, actually when I got drafted by the Lions. Uh, I, I don't know if you know the story. It's kind of a crazy story. Uh, time so uh you know the canadian draft was right before the uh nfl draft in 1980 and um i hadn't really like mentioned anything about going to play canadian football um and um i got a call from a, an actually a high school buddy of mine uh ross dyson back in victoria saying hey ed congratulations and i'm going why what and he goes you got drafted i've gone no, I couldn't have, Ross. The NFL draft's not coming up for about, you know, another 30 days or so. And he goes, no, you, you, it's in the newspaper in the Victoria Times. Uh, you got drafted by the Hamilton Tiger Cat. And I go, what? I said, I don't know anything about it. And he goes, well, the draft was a couple of days ago. They just put something in the paper here. So I, I went to our sports information director at Tulane, and he knew anything about it, uh, M.L. Lagarde. And he goes, Ed, uh, I haven't heard anything about it. You know, if you want, I'll reach out to them and uh, see what's going on. So, you know, a couple hours later, I got a call back from him. And he goes, Ed, I'll be damned. Uh, yeah, you got drafted <laughs> by the Hamilton Tiger Cat. And I said, oh, really? And he goes, yeah, I, I got a number for you for you to call. Uh, you know, uh, so I got the number and I called. I got like a general switchboard. And I said, hi, you know, uh, I'm Ed Murray. I understand I, I got drafted by the Tiger Cat, uh, you know, just calling to see who I need to talk to. They go, hold on a minute. They, they get some secretary kind of was seeing maybe the coaches or general manager. So, and she goes, Oh yeah, we've been meaning to give you a call. Um, uh, you know, what, what is your contact number? So I gave her my number when I was at school in New Orleans and, uh, said, okay, uh, we'll give you a call back. Uh, I'm still waiting for that call from the Hamilton Tiger Cats. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? They never called you yeah. back? 
Uh, they never called me back. I had to call them to make sure they knew who they drafted. But, uh, yeah, my understanding, I got drafted and I, I don't know, you know, maybe they just wanted to keep my rights or something like that. But, uh, no, I never got a follow up call. I never talked to any coaches or management or anything about, uh, you know, the, the chances of going to play in the Canadian football league. If they had called back, what would, would that have changed the course of history? Well, more than likely it would have, purely because, you know, still even back then in the 80s, you know, they, they were looking for guys to kind of do both jobs or have the ability to do that. And, um, you know, I, I was not the greatest hunters. I would not have made a, a living just hunting in any league. Uh, and um, uh, I know you threw my stats out for my five punts that I had in emergency situations. And as you can tell, they're, they're not gaudy stats. So, uh I was kind of just resigning myself that if I was to do anything, I would just kick, and I was just going to kind of play my cards out to see what would happen in the NFL. Eddie, switching gears a little bit, Bob and I have been all in on the Lions this year. The team's won six of the last seven. Dan Campbell has them playing really well. Do you think that this is a Lions team that could, could win out and get themselves in the playoffs? Well, you, you know, uh, you know, like, uh, Dumb and Dumber says, right? So you're saying there's a chance, right? So, uh, uh, that's kind of what the situation is here. I know the city is a buzz. I, the, I, I've been fortunate to go to the last three home games and each home game, the, the fans have been just so excited about everything and they're really playing good football. And of course, the, the biggest problem that they have had in the past is, They'd never done very well on the road, and this year they are. They're they're winning some games, and uh, this is going to be another pass, uh, tough task for them against Carolina away on Saturday. But I think if they can pull this one out, they they've got a shot at winning out. Uh, so uh, uh, we're very excited about what's going on, and Coach Campbell's really got them playing well and all on the, all on the same page, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and last season was. Campbell's first year as, as the Lions head coach, they were 313 and one. This year started out really poorly, but all of a sudden things have turned around. What do you think is the difference that's happened since early this season to turn this whole thing around in the right direction? Well, uh, it's coincidental, the timing of everything, but I know it's something that I kind of focus on at, at time. And, I, and I'm sure you, you understand this. Also, like when, when you are playing as poorly and they were playing poorly at the beginning of the year. I mean, that their, their defense was really having some difficulty. They couldn't stop the pass, couldn't stop the run, and it just became a track meet and they just were always at the losing end of everything. The defense just was really, really playing poorly. Uh, and then they decided to fire their defensive back coach. And I, you know, I, I think you'll agree with my assessment of it. You know, usually if you have one side of the ball that's not really doing good and the, and the head coach and management decide that they need to make a change, it's usually the coordinator that gets fired, not in a, not a defensive back coach. Well, since that time, they have been playing unbelievable defense. So, I, again, it's just the timing of everything and how they made the decision to do that. I thought it was very curious how they made that decision at that time. But, uh, I guess they knew what they were doing. Uh, it turned out that, cause they didn't make any changes. It wasn't like, uh, 
you know, they benched guys or they traded guys and cut them and brought new guys in. They didn't do anything different. They played the same people, same position. They were playing the same defense. They weren't doing anything different except they didn't have a defensive back coach. So, um, you know, crazier things have happened in the NFL. Uh, you know, when you ride a wave like this, you just keep riding. Don't try to figure it out. So, uh, right now, Coach Campbell's got them very engaged. They're, they're staying healthy at this time of the year, which is very important going into a playoff push. You got to try to continue to keep continuity of starters on the field. And they've done a really good job at that. So, uh, uh, I'm hoping Saturday would be, uh, a good outcome for them to, uh, beat Carolina on the road. Bob, questions for Eddie? Eddie, it's an honor to speak with you again. And we always like to get a, a background as far as the youth of our guests, as far as them growing up and how they got to where they finally got to. And a lot of our American athletes, Eddie, I mean, they, they, they always stress the importance of playing, uh, multi-sports and especially America, baseball, basketball, football. I'm wondering, mm-hmm. like up in up in Nova Scotia. I mean, was it hockey, lacrosse? What what did you do as a youth? Um, and tell us maybe some of uh, how you basically got an interest in kicking, but more important, the uh, sports you played leading up to football. Well, first of all, I got to preface: I'm the only Canadian that can't skate. Okay, so that's <laughs> number one. Yeah, that's right? <laughs> so I I grew up actually in England. So I was born in Halifax, ah. Nova Scotia. My father uh, was a career naval officer, and after 25 years in the Navy, he retired, but he was English. And ah. with England, uh, Canada being part of the Commonwealth, he joined the Canadian Navy at the time, served in World War II and Green War, all that type of stuff. 1960, he decided to retire, and I was five years old, and he moved the family to Portsmouth, England which is the naval base that D-Day started out of. It's in the south of England, right across from the Isle of Wight. So my adolescence, my growing up sport, was soccer, rugby, cricket. That's what I grew up. And, of course, with soccer, of course, and, and rugby, there's a lot of kicking. And I, uh, you know, I would take the converts and the penalty kicks in rugby. And, you know, I had a very hard shot and uh, when I played soccer. And that's what I grew up doing. And... um when my uh, father passed away when I was 14, my mother uh, is Canadian. She's actually a new born, born in St. John. Her family at that time were living in, most of her relatives were living in Victoria, British Columbia. So my mother moved from Portsmouth, and I went to move uh, live in uh, Victoria after my father died. On my 15th birthday, I flew to Toronto, and then went from Toronto out to uh, Victoria. and. Didn't start really playing football, football, um, when, until I was like 16. And then 19 comes around and, uh, I get a chance to play football and get a full scholarship to go to Tulane University. So I, I didn't look at myself as a kicker. I just grew up having the ability to, you know, be accurate kicking field goals in rugby and convert stuff like that. And then also having a hard shot, so I had a strong leg. And it just, it kind of diverted myself over to just concentrating on just being a place kicker. And I will not forget those Lion teams of the late 80s, 
Eddie, and especially 88-89 where you made uh, 40 out of 42 field goals, which at the time was incredible. One of my best friends was a major Lion fan and would laud your efforts every week, and it, it was incredible. And that was those were the Wayne Fonts era back then. What are your memories of Wayne as a coach and your relationship with him? Well, I mean, Coach Fonts, God love him. You know, uh, you know, he has the dubious distinction of having the the most losses as a Detroit Lions coach, but he also has the record for having the most wins as the Detroit Lions coach. So he he had a long tenure of uh, you know some pretty lean years. So it wasn't like he had a a Bill Belichick uh, record of being double digit wins all the time and and having a great record. We were having a lot of, uh, you know, up and down seasons where we would, you know, win six one year and then win nine the next and win four the next year and then win ten the next. I mean, it just was a, a big roller coaster ride with Coach Ponce, uh as tenure of uh, head coach for the Lions. But uh, I, I enjoyed my time under Coach Ponce. Uh The team was really coming together. Uh, you know, things really kind of uh, escalated for us in the, in the late 80s. 80s when we uh, drafted Barry Sanders, and that's when we, you know, made the NFC Championship game in '91. Uh, you know, Barry was so special back then, and, and of course, uh, the Hall of Fame back as he's turned out to be. Uh, he, he was just a phenomenal player to play with, and and really brought some good success to the Lions. And Eddie, when you came into the league in 1980, speaking of great running backs, obviously you got the opportunity to play with Sanders later in your career, but Billy Sims came into the league yeah. with you and and that guy just was a phenomenal rusher the first season i mean that first game billy rushes for 153 yards and, and three touchdowns yeah. i mean talk about what it was like coming into the league and getting to see him play uh well billy's kind of a special friend of mine we kind of hit it off uh you know together as rookies and being in that rookie class in 1980 uh, you know, they had some good players. Eric Kipple was another longtime player who was drafted that year. He was my holder for nine years and, of course, our quarterback. Uh, but Billy was, uh, again, one of those people that was really special to play with. Uh, he was an amazing back and, of course, coming out of college as a Heisman Trophy winner and everything. Uh, he just uh, kind of flipped into the pro uh, game uh, without any hesitation at all. And he was uh, an amazing teammate and uh, just a too bad that, you know, the injury that he had then, if he had it now, he'd be playing again. But back then, you didn't recover from injuries like Billy had back then. And it was a shame because we only got to see just how good he was for four years in the NFL. You mentioned having a strong leg a moment ago. And when you were playing in the league, 50-yard field goals weren't necessarily the norm. And, and the guys mm-hmm. that were making them were, were few and far between. But now... Everybody is making 50-yard field goals. It feels like before long, we're going to see a guy hit a 70-yarder. What's the difference in the kicking game back when you played versus what it is now? Well, I think like everything, I I, I use the analogy. When I was a rookie, uh, the biggest guy we had on the Detroit Lions at that time, and again, it was one person, was Bubba Baker. Bubba was 6'6", about 290, maybe 300 later in the year. He had one, one guy that big. And our offensive line, I think, averaged, I don't know, 270. That was it. Nowadays, football, you've got 15 guys that are over 300 pounds. And you may have five guys over 350, and they all run faster than we did back in 1980. 
So the game has changed. The athlete has changed. The, the training uh, is all different. It's more sports specific now. There, there's more kicking camps, more kicking coaches that are out there. Well, back then, no, no one had any idea how to give me any advice. I was my only person who was the hardest on myself and drove myself to try to be better and better. And I just had to try to figure out what I needed to do to get better. Where nowadays there are, you get, get on the internet, you put in kicking coach. There are hundreds of them that pop up and have camps all over the world. Some more qualified than others, but, uh, it's, it's really become a specialized sport, pro sport, yeah, really come that way, and uh, football especially. But the, the size of the guys now and the athleticism and the speed is just uh, amazing in the NFL today. Eddie, the country is braced for what's going to be a brutally cold weekend. And for you having spent so much time in Detroit and then playing in, in cities like Chicago and Green Bay and then uh, the other places, the other stops you had in your career, you know, outdoors in mm-hmm. Philadelphia, outdoors in Washington, in the dead of winter. What's the coldest and most difficult condition you ever had to kick in? Uh, uh, we, I actually uh, played in the second coldest game at Lambeau Field. So we all know the uh, the ice bowl with uh, mm. Dallas and them in the playoffs, but we played the second coldest game where the night before the game they had an ice storm. So there was about two inches of ice on top of the field. I mean, uh, the, the story I tell, uh, you know, as kickers and punters, we, we, we're kind of like, uh, amateur meteorologists. So we're always worried about the <laughs> weather and all this kind of stuff. And of course, playing cold or rain or wind and all those types of things kind of take that in. And when they said there was going to be an ice storm, I didn't think it was going to be that bad. And I remember the hotel that we were staying at in Appleton, Wisconsin. I get up in the morning and I open up the curtains and I look out because there was a, a highway not too far, like in viewing distance of of uh, the room. I could look out and see the highway. And I remembered seeing 15 people ice skating down the highway. Wow. <laughs> and I'm going, now that's something you don't see every day. You know, so I remember looking around and I, there were cars and trucks and, and ditches and stuff all over the place. Meanwhile, there's people who are like power skating down the middle of the highway, like 15 guys. And the, the, in the NFL, the rule is, especially outdoor games, uh, they don't need them in indoor games, but if it's, if there is going to be inclement weather, that there's a tarp put on the field the night before, and it has to be taken off two hours before kickoff. So if it's a, you know, one o'clock game by 11 a.m., they have to raise the tarp. Well, the problem they had, they couldn't raise it because it was ice. So they had to fire up the coil underneath Lambeau Field to melt the ice to get the turf off, the, the tarp off, I should say. So that took some time. So we didn't actually get, you know, we got our warm-ups in, but they were short because it, it, the field crew was working double time trying to get the field ready, at least get the tarp off. Well, what ended up happening, the water that was melting was all moving all over the place. And I think it was, I want to guess what it was. I mean, it was minus something un- ungodly that I've never been in front of playing football or any kind of sport in. And I remember standing right in front of the heater, getting ready to go out and kick, and I took like five steps, and I was frozen solid. I'm going distance, and the field was like cement, trying to kick off it, plant off it. I don't know how those guys were playing and landing and elbows and all that kind of stuff. 
it was um, it, it was pretty nasty cold. So, Bob, one more for Eddie. Yeah, Eddie, I'm always interested in how ex players uh, spent their off season. We've had Jeff Reed on the show who used to tell us he did a lot of leg work, obviously, and, and leg presses were big with him. He had huge legs. Uh, tell us about your training in the off seasons and what probably helped you out the most. Well, I was fortunate enough when I was at Tulane, uh, I met a, a, a guy who played at Tulane as a walk-on wide receiver back in the early 70s. His name was Mackie Shillstone. Uh, Mackie Shillstone, um, today has been, past 15 years, he's been Serena Williams' private trainer. But Mackie got into training, uh, like in the latter part of the age. And he and I hooked up again. I used to work out with him in college and he used to help guys who were potential draftees for Tulane when I was there get ready for the draft. And he was just someone who was just always very, uh, uh, you know, knew a lot of uh, diet programs, exercise programs, workout things, kind of get people in really good shape and just wasn't doing it as living. Um, and when he decided to get into it uh, uh, full time, I kind of crossed paths with him again. And since 1989, I think I first started seeing him. I would go see him every off season, come up with a program that I wanted, you know, he goes, all right, what do you want to do this year? I go, well, you know, I want to be a little lighter, quicker, more fast twitch muscles, or, hey, I want to be a little bit heavier this year, get a little bulkier. And, and he would come up with my program. And he was the number one reason why I played till I was 44. He was a, an amazing uh, a trainer for not only me, but numerous guys, a lot of, a lot of baseball clients, uh, Will Clark, Ozzie Smith. Uh, he did a lot of hockey teams. He worked for the St. Louis Blues, did New York Yankees, uh, a lot of entertainers. He did stuff like that. But, uh, his swan song really right now is, uh, he, he had been, uh, Serena Williams' trainer for the past 15 years. I think he's trying to get her ready for the Australian Open right now. They gave her, uh, uh, I think an open seat to come in and play. So, um, uh, yeah, he, he was, he was my guardian angel who guided me gave me what I needed to do to get ready and uh I carved out nineteen years in the NFL from a kid from Victoria that I never thought would ever play one down, let alone nineteen years. Eddie, let our listeners know what you're doing now. Uh past eleven years I've been working for a nonprofit in Michigan. It's uh headquartered out of Grand Rapids, Michigan called Hope Network. Uh we're one of the larger nonprofits uh in the state with about hundred and eighty million dollars. About 2,700 employees, and uh, we provide services in all 83 counties in Michigan, where it's, uh, whether it's uh, neural rehab, uh, autism services, we have reading programs, we have over 300 group homes around the state of Michigan, drug addiction, workforce development, uh, transportation for our service line, uh, people that need it. Um, I've been very blessed to be with them. They're a Christian organization. They do great work. And uh, I've been director of donor relations uh, for the past seven years. And my first uh, six years with them, I just sat on their board. And they offered me a job I couldn't refuse. So I took it and became the director of donor relations. Eddie, how can our listeners stay up to date with the great things you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's on social media? Well, I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn. Uh, that's kind of like my only, I don't do Facebook or anything, Twitter or anything like that. Um, hopenetwork.org is our website if there's any people that are interested 
in uh, following any of our events that we have uh, around the state uh, to raise awareness for our service line. Uh, I have a golf outing here in the uh, metro Detroit area. Uh, past 10 years, I've had a golf outing at Oakland University uh, to raise money for Hope Network. And um, uh, anybody has uh, any other questions, they can just go to our website, again, at hopenetwork.org. Eddie, thank you so much for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of this show. You're fantastic, my friend. We we wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. Absolutely. I'd like to wish you both a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and to all the listeners out there, too, uh, have a safe and wonderful holiday. Thank you, Eddie. Thanks, Eddie. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Good night. Bye-bye. See you, Eddie. That is the great Eddie Murray, Bob, and a guy that, that played, like I say, from 1980 to 2000, a couple of different stints uh, with the Cowboys, had actually retired at one point, uh, signed a one-day deal uh, to retire a Lion, and then uh, uh, a little over a year later, the Cowboys called it back, and he went back and, and, and played some more, but a great kicker and a fantastic. Now, he was, if you remember, Chris, like I brought up, those 88-89, he just did not miss. You know, he was... He was more, they call him Eddie Money, and he was more popular than the more popular Eddie Money at the time, right? He, that's, that, that was his nickname back. He was so good, and you said about his extra points, he just never missed. But, I mean, those right. two years, can you imagine 40 out of 42? That was back in the day, Chris, where that, those kind of numbers were insane. 95% of your field goal? No, right. that was crazy. But, and he was making like those ones, like you said, 51, 52, 53 yards when they weren't being made that much but uh he was a pleasure to watch and uh my goodness a long career but what a great interview too chris yeah enjoy it very much all right when bob and i come back we'll be turning on our thursday night tailgate spotlight on the positive here two more stories about guys out there doing great things in their community we'll do it right on the other side of this real quick station break Thursday Night Tailgate, where the spotlight is always on the positive. Tune in Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time to hear your favorite NFL legends, players, and coaches sharing their stories. Now back to Chris and Bob. I wouldn't joke about anything else that happened to you tonight. All right, we are back here on Thursday Night Tailgate, turning on our spotlight on the positive. Bob, what are you spotlighting this week? Well, Chris, we're going to continue on our path with the Walter Payton Men of the Year nominees. And I came across this guy's story. And uh, again, like every week, it, it just blows you out of the water when you read all about it. And I'm going to be talking about William Golston, defensive end of the Buccaneers. Chris, he's been around 10 years and, and very quietly has uh, put together an incredible career. But that's kind of the kind of guy he is off the field and how he approaches charity also and since he came in the year chris he's really made it a tradition of uh getting into the community he gets to do thanksgiving meals to families in the tampa bay area every year and in detroit where he originally was from now in detroit he grew up chris they called it food insecurity he was from a family that just did not have enough so this is something that was really really close to his heart and uh, he's continuing with that. And, uh, again, I don't know if it's on purpose. The NFL website is, is featuring more and more of what these guys do. And the list really will blow you away. You can't even talk about it within a couple minutes. But some of the things he's done, Chris, he, he 
donated his own money to a cancer center uh, in the Tampa Bay area. It's called the Moffitt Cancer Center, Edgecombe Society down there. Uh, he has sponsored a ticket program um, at the Bucks home game for the last seven seasons. Every one of his guests, he gets there, gets game tickets, meal vouchers, hats, T-shirts. Uh, he's done that over 700 times, Chris. And uh, again, he again, Christmas is huge for him. All the different things he does, he uh, he gets into so gets into children's hospitals in Tampa Bay, uh, boys and girls club down at Bush Gardens. He's been a major contributor, to Big Brothers Big Sisters of Tampa Bay. He is always visiting children at children's hospital, and just recently, Chris, he was uh, singing Christmas carols to residents at an old folks home called the Westminster Palms Retirement Home. Uh, this is just, again, it only touches the surface. I don't know how he has the time to do what he does, but uh, again, go to the NFL site, go to the Tampa Bay or the NFL Man of the Year part. Either way, you're going to see Golston's name come up under community because uh, that's what he's all about. He does never wants to have his name, uh, you know, thrown out there, Chris. He wants to do it anonymously. That's what kind of guy he is. Wow. What a fantastic guy. Doing so many great things, Bob. And it's yeah. interesting that you bring up food security because I'm putting my spotlight this week on former Packers wide receiver Donald Driver and the Packers Touchdown for Hunger program. Touchdown for Hunger donates $2,000 to end hunger for every touchdown that the Packers score. They've been doing this program to help the community for the last 20 years. And over that time, they've donated over $1.7 million. Pantry is a local food bank and one of the recipients of that money. Driver presented a donation of $24,000 to them this past Tuesday. And over the years, Paul's Pantry has received over $450,000 as a result of the program. And that organization was started to help care for hungry people in the community who are unable to purchase enough food for their families due to not having the means to do so. So the goal of the organization is to provide families with enough food every week for as long as they need so that they can focus using their money on shelter, utilities, and other necessities to avoid becoming homeless. And Donald Driver is a big advocate for the program. He said he's been in the same situation as some of the families who are recipients of the program. He went on to say that people always ask him, why are you always smiling? And he says it's because if I can touch the lives and impact lives in a way that makes people happy, then that makes him happy every day. And I think that's fantastic. And, you know, what, what drivers doing, what the Packers are doing to help feed the hungry Bob, I think it's just a tremendous thing and all the money that they've raised. That's why I'm putting my spotlight on them. And as we said last week, Chris, acts like that take on a, a different meaning this time of the year, you know, where it really has to be heartfelt. And it's something about the holidays and getting through to those people who have less than us. Uh, it takes on a bigger meaning. Uh, in late December. So, yeah, kudos to Driver, Golston, all these guys. Again, it's why we save it for the end, and it's our favorite part of the show. That's right. All right, my friend, it is time for us to put a bow on this edition of Thursday Night Tailgate. We want to send out our thanks again to Fred Lynn, Tony Collins, Fred Clare, and Eddie Murray, Eddie Murray for joining us tonight. And, Bob, thank you so much for sharing another Thursday night with me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Chris, and th those were tremendous guests tonight, and uh, I can't wait to talk to all of them again, and uh, I guess we'll do this in a couple more weeks, correct? That's right. We'll do it two weeks from tonight. We're going to take next week off, so Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everybody. 
And when we come back in the new year, uh, our guest will be Atlanta Sports Talk Radio Guru and one of our TNT Guest Hall of Famers, Bo Bach, will be back with us. Always a fun time with Bo. Former Jets, Bucks, and Chiefs tight end and now head coach of the XFL St. Louis Battlehawks, Anthony Beck, will be back on the show. Looking forward to catching up with him. And then Pittsburgh Sports Talk Radio host John Steigerwald will make his TNT debut. Looking forward to having Staggy as part of the show. Plus, of course, Tony Collins will be here with our five-star pick of the week. Folks, you can follow us on social media. You can find us, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CT Mascaro. Bob is at Bob underscore Lazari. The show is at TNT Podcast. Plus, we've got our own Facebook pages, both Bob and I. Please uh, visit us there. We have a, a page for the show, Thursday Night Tailgate. Give us a like. That's very important to us. Please also check out our website, ThursdayNightTailgate.com. You'll be able to stay up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Plus, we'll give you links to previous episodes and some uh, some guest spots as well. So you'll always find new stuff on ThursdayNightTailgate.com. Check it out. You can find this show also as a podcast. We are all over the net. You're going to find this show available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify. If you've got a favorite podcasting app, we're probably on that one, too. Just type in Thursday Night Tailgate in the search bar. We'll find us on there as well. Bob, take us home, my friend. Okay, Chris. Again, Merry Christmas to you and your family and to all our listeners out there. And we also want to thank our announcer, Joe Lajanusa, for the wonderful job he always does with our intro and ads. Also, kudos to Kyle Turley and the Kyle Turley Band for the upcoming outro music. On behalf of myself and Chris, we want to thank everyone out there tonight for listening. We appreciate you the most. Until two weeks from now, good night, Kevin. Good night, Terry. Good night, Rusty. And good night, Coach Dan Reeves. We miss you guys.